Welcome to the Wheel of Sport, home of the greatest sports stories ever told. My name's Ian McNally and with me is... It's Matt Lavery, Matt Lavery. Good morning, listener. Good morning, Ian. I say morning. You could be listening at any time of the day. Time of recording. Let's paint the picture, Matt. I am absolutely sweating here. It's 35 degrees in Melbourne and it's it's night time and I am just sat still and sweating. Still sweating. <laughs> I'm looking at the morning light come through your window, the winter's light from yes. Edinburgh. I imagine it's not 35 degrees. <laughs> not 35 degrees out there. We've got the we've got the thermostat up though, Ian, so we're not doing too badly. Let me get this wheel spinning. We were just talking just off air. We occasionally do that just for a little bit, but uh, I was saying that I normally handwrite my notes for the show, and I, I always try to limit myself to one page of A4 because that equals half an hour. And when I said that out loud, they realised that it doesn't make any sense. You well, gave no. me a slightly puzzled look. <laughs> Depending on how how big you write and how quick you speak. How big your writing is. How quick you speak. <laughs> There's so many variables to it. Whether you use dot points, whether you use paragraphs, who knows. But the who wheel knows? has stopped spinning. It has. The topic for this episode is... One of a kind. Were you going to take this on? Matt, I've got the perfect story for this. Go um, ahead. I know we do have quite a few uh, American listeners this is to do with the American sport of baseball. Baseball. Is it an American sport? I know it's obviously popularised by Americans, but it's played elsewhere know. as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, they play it. Back gardens and stuff. Yeah, play fact a bit check in, that. There's, a, there's a professional league in Japan, isn't there? Yeah. But, and there's professional leagues in, in other uh, countries, but nothing to the prominence of, uh, of the Americans. Um, it's one of those interests. We did a, an episode, Matt, on um, on Mayo, the uh, playing in the GAA, and mm-hmm. you know that is a sport very much rooted in its uh, geographical location in Ireland, and it's only played in Ireland. Baseball has got a little bit more popular, but it still is feels very American. Like they certainly, yeah. you know, baseball caps, you know, the the baseball bat. You know, I'm sure you carry one in the boot of your car. Uh, you know, there's all <laughs> there's all the things American associations with it, but I'm going to take you back to 1960. See the way my voice is really unsure whether it was 1960 or was going back to. It was because I really meant to say before 1966. Right. <laughs> Pre 1966. 1960 was the place I landed, but I could have just said. Basically, any time of the pre or post war era. I just want to give a little picture about the state of baseball in the US at that time. So, um, you've got the major league, you, it's a national league, but the players' side of things at this point, um, before 1966, is pretty dire. If, from an outsider looking in, the word exploitation is writ large because the players are picked from generally, you know, small towns or they're scouted out and they find a way getting to play for the, the Premier League, the top league of baseball in the US. And the, the demand is quite high. You know, they're playing well over 100 games a year. The schedule is packed. They don't get paid very much at all. And they're treated 
very ordinarily by the club's owners. So for example, Matt, there's a, a clause in every player's contract, which essentially means that they are a slave to the club. They cannot move. They cannot negotiate their salary. If they want to go to a different club, they can't. Like, they're in complete servitude to the club's owners. Right, okay. The only way that they can get out of playing is quitting the sport altogether. Wow. Added to this, this this might help, like, paint the picture as well, is that there's a baseball card manufacturer called Topps, which is the the top uh, manufacturer for baseball cards. And obviously, they Very used good. to put them in cigarette packets yeah. and every, you know, they used to... Um, be everywhere these baseball cards some of them are highly collectible as well but what the company used to do is they used to go to the minor league baseball and the the youth baseball and they try to spot the next promising youngsters coming through who are about to break into the major league yeah and what they do they'd say oh you can be on a baseball card and we'll give you five dollars and if, if we'll give you $5 if, if you sign up with us. And then if you make it to the major league, we'll give you $125 a year and you'll be on the baseball cards. Now, what they didn't tell those young players was that once they gave them that $5 and they signed the contract, that they owned the rights for the pictures, photographs, image rights, publicity, everything of that player forever. <laughs> right. <laughs> so this company just is handing out $5 bills to anyone showing promise, knowing that they can cash in and exploit them hugely. But presumably, though, in that time, you know, to be a professional athlete would still have a certain cachet and a certain appeal. Like, it's something people want to do, right? It's not seen as a terrible job you know it's it's surely something that yeah i'm a i'm a pro baseball star that would be a big deal right you've hit the nail on the head matt because you do wonder why would people tolerate this you're 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 being exploited it's clear you know to the outside looking in you just go you're being ripped off like you're you're the talent you're you're the the money makers in this business and yet you're being exploited and you're not being paid anywhere near what you should. But exactly what you said, these players are from, you know, small towns in the south or, you know, they're just a bit wet around the ears. They're over the moon to be playing. They get their uniform washed. <laughs> they get, you know, the, the owner of the club might slip them a, a $5 bill or pay for this, you know, counter meal at the local pub if they played well seen like they're helping them out you know that they're, they're really grateful for the opportunity to play baseball but that said in the close season these lads have to go back to their hometown and work in the quarry or you know do some manual labor to to survive right so it, it is a hand-to-mouth existence but as you said the reason they're being exploited is because there is some prestige and cachet attached to the sport and they're thinking, well, at least this means I don't have to work in the quarry 12 months a year. Mm -hmm. I only have to work down the quarry for two months a year or whatever it is. Yeah. So 
it, it's it's a really interesting uh, situation. And what's interesting about it is that the whole of the network of, of baseball clubs and players, because this has been in situ for a long time, nobody questions it. Mm. Everybody accepts it. This is the norm. And if anybody questions it, obviously, they get put in, back in their box pretty quickly. Obviously, you've got the background of the civil rights movement, movement bubbling along in the 50s and the early 60s. Mm-hmm. It's a time for social change. No, I was just going to ask about McCarthyism as well, because like, there'd surely be the temptation maybe for the players to unionise or something. But, you know, if we're talking in the 60s, then the, the, the sort of fear of the commie, the red amongst us, uh, might, you know, they're, they're, I guess there'd be that sort of fear. You can't, it'd be very difficult to sort of get people together and say, oh, lads, we need to try and improve our lot here um, because because of that as well, right? Yeah, well, you know, America has a really strong history of trade unionism and socialism and communism as well. But obviously with McCarthyism, there is that huge wave of, you know, there's there's been red scares in like 1919, 1921. There was uh, the House of Un-American Activities was formed um, way before uh, the Second World War, uh, which kind of picks up speed and then McCarthyism really takes hold uh blacklists and so on so yeah uh, look if you're a, a player from you know a small town you end up in a big city playing for the boston red sox or something you yeah you probably don't want to stick your neck out and you've seen what's happened to other people but the players do have a union it's called the major league baseball players association and um it was set up effectively by the club owners Right. And the club owners put their stooges in power and say to the players, well, look, you do have representation, but it's completely toothless and it's completely in the pocket of management mm. and uh, the organisation itself. Yeah. So it's a period, obviously the Vietnam War is happening as well. And um, Richard Nixon actually catches the eye of the Major League Baseball Players Association. He has been vice president at this point. And he's thinking about running for president in 1966. And he's approached by the Major League Baseball Players Association to be their chief. And he's thinking about, because obviously he's thinking of making a tilt for the top job, uh, which he is eventually successful. But there's another guy who's on the radar. And he is the chief of the United Steelworkers of America. Let's put this in perspective. The United Steelworkers Union is a proper union, Matt. I was going to say, that sounds like a big deal. Yeah, it's absolutely full of, you know, you imagine the stereotypical union guys. But also, they're dealing with a commodity that has just become really important because they're fighting a war in Southeast Asia. Yeah. (laughs) And they need this material. And the head of that union is a guy called Marvin Miller. Now, Marvin Miller, to the outside, if you just went and just did a quick description of him, he would very much fit the type of traditional trade unionist. But he is very tough, strong. He, you, you wouldn't want to physically fight him. He's very... Uh, 
he, but he's not like a beef cake. He's like he he is. He's also got this um, edge to him, but that is tempered by an eloquence, a really well ordered mind. Uh, he's very intelligent, very well read, knows the laws back to front, knows his workers' rights back to front, and so he's become an exceptionally gifted leader of the United Steelworkers Union. Now, Major League Baseball, they want him to run the Players Association yeah, I can imagine alongside why. Richard Nixon. Do you think Marvin Miller, strong trade union man, wants to run alongside as I mean, his no, running They're probably mate? not natural bedfellows, are they, these two? It doesn't sound like, knowing what I know uh, about, about Richard Nixon, the, the conservative... Uh, Republican. Fraud. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> he was late, later indicted, obviously, in the Watergate scandal for, for dodgy, yeah, dodgy dealings. Uh, he actually looks in good light, given recent events. But anyway, um, <laughs> Richard Nixon uh, is Omen and Arin. Uh, Miller says, if you want me to do this job, he can't be anywhere near it. <laughs> So the Players Association decide to go with Miller. As, as I said, Nixon ends up running for president and uh, is successful. But Miller, 1966, is imposed, uh, is, uh, it's not imposed, is it? He is given the role of Major League Baseball Players Association um, top dog. And this is where it all changes. Matt, I'm going to take you on a, a journey through this because Marvin Miller, I had not heard about ever before. And I heard about his name by chance and I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of this guy. The impact he made on Major League Baseball had ramifications across American society. It still has impact today in Major League Baseball. What he did all the way back when... And it's quite amazing, the story. 1966, he gets the job. He understands that he's come from the United Steelworkers Union, which was very strong. They had negotiating power, etc. He's gone to a position where the players have no negotiating power. But also, the players don't even know their own value. Players are kind of happy. So he's going in a situation where he's also got to educate the players about their worth and persuade them that they can take collective action in order to progress. But they don't want to. They're quite happy with their occasional steak dinner and happy with getting the uniform washed and getting a lift home, you know. It's fine. Occasionally being able to play golf with the CEO or whatever. So he comes into a really unusual situation. And remember, he's coming from uh, from the point of view as a trade union man, as a leader of a huge industrial trade union. And here he is. He's got to create this whole thing from scratch. His first negotiation, he was astonished by Matt because he goes into a room. There's a, a, a pension fund for the players and... They're about to sign the new television rights, but the new television rights have gone up by 60%. Now, the pension agreement was that it would is also a percentage of the television rights. 
And the owners of the club said, well, we don't want that because it'll go up by too much. They'll get way too much, <laughs> even though it's still a percentage. Yeah. So we want to make it a flat fee. We want to make it a flat fee. Flat fee, yeah, yeah. So they go in and Marvin Miller, he sat in the room and he's expecting a negotiation, a to and fro. The representatives from Major League Baseball Players Association are there from the union. We've also got the chiefs from Major League Baseball. We've got lawyers in the room. And they say, okay, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to make the players' pension fund connection to the uh, television rights is a flat fee now. Thanks, everyone. And that's it. And Marvin Miller was astonished because he's thinking, well... This isn't a negotiation. We, we've just been told. And so, in a calm, eloquent fashion, he explains that they've just broken US labor law. By not negotiating? By not going through the correct procedure. Because Miller's come from an environment where if you don't know the law back to front, you're going to get turned over and exposed pretty quickly and he's going into a ramshackle environment here where he is the one who needs to start laying down the rules. And so he pushes back and he says, no, he says, this isn't happening. You're breaking the law and you can't do this. The Major League Baseball owners say, okay. <laughs> he's won his first victory. 1968. He also has the very first collective bargaining agreement. Uh, it takes the minimum salary of from $6,000 a year for a player to $10,000 a year, which is quite significant. Oh, yeah. But again, Miller. Miller, very skilled, very adept. He manages to get that gain. 1970, he builds in an arbitration to resolve wage disputes. Now, up until this point, if a player thought he'd been underpaid, there was nowhere for him to go. The mm. owner would just say, we'll see you later then. Bye-bye. Whereas now, there's an arbitration process. So that player can then come, use the lawyers, use the team from the union to go back to the club and arbitrate for him. And yeah. so it changes again the whole perspective of the game and also the perspective of the players in terms of their relationship with the clubs. In 1972, he takes the players on the first ever strike action of any professional sports teams in the world. Really? Apparently, this is the first industrial action taken by a professional sports um, body and it's over pension funds. What, what do you expect? You expect those Major League Baseball owners to say no. Eventually, they cave. Miller had prepared like a war chest ready to battle. And he, he hardened the players to say, look, this could go on for months. And it goes on for a matter of days. I think it, it doesn't even see three weeks. Yeah. And they cave. And he, he's got another win. It's so fascinating how Miller just has this ability to go in and 
argue for the players, but in such an astute way that he gets the answer that he wants. Those were, that time when he took the players out on strike, it was a really simple thing that basically there was a surplus in the pension fund and the players said, well, can we just use that surplus for better benefits for us now? And the club said, no, 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 can't do that. And Miller pushed back. And so there was this sense that this Major League Baseball owners had had it their way for so long, but now they were caving into these demands and able to, the players were able to start getting some control. So in 1974, there's a couple of really watershed moments. Uh, a player called Catfish Hunter, he uh, pl- plays for Oakland and they decided that they weren't going to pay him an agreed uh, $50,000 insurance annuity. Uh, it was in his contract. They just refused to pay it. He went to arbitration and the arbitration decided that if the club won't pay and honour their contract, he could become, and wait for it, Matt, a free agent. Free agent, yeah. I was thinking that that would be the case. It's a bit like the Bosman story we did, isn't it? It is. There, there is similarities to the Bosman ruling and uh, Jean-Marc Bosman's uh kind of efforts but this is kind of take you know Bosman was kind of a, a strange uh, individual effort uh, utilizing European court rulings whereas this is a is a deliberate collective unionized effort yeah. to, to better people's um, uh, situation but it's in- interesting that it was called the reserve clause uh, and that's what the players uh, was holding them back really locking them into clubs there was two players um, called Andy Messerschmitt. Is I said Messerschmitt because I said the German version. His name is Messerschmitt, which is too difficult to say, <laughs> um, even though it's Anglo. Anglo. Um, and another guy called Dave McNally. Go ahead, Dave. Yes. Ah, Dave. One of your boys. <laughs> Do you know I have like I have quite a big family. There's a big. There's a lot of McNallys. No, David's. Wow. Isn't that unbelievable? Like, how, how do you use all those names and not have a Dave in your family? Like, there's a, quite a few people in my family who either drive a taxi or own a van. No Daves? That surely the... <laughs> I can't believe it, Matt. I've got 27 first cousins. No Daves. <laughs> anyway, um, these two players, they're both pitchers. They challenge the reserve clause and this along with catfish hunter brings down this wall the reserve clause is gone by 1975 bear in mind miller's only took taken over the union in 1966 and within the first nine years he's managed to get the players minimum wage up get arbitration for players he's taken the players out on strike and He's now created the modern free agent system. It was founded in 1975 um, due to that arbitration process supporting the players. That key decision that was made um, just changed baseball forever. It's called the Seats decision. And they just managed to unlock the shackles from these players and make them complete free agents. 
um, so that they could negotiate the, the wages, they could move clubs, they could play off against one another. Catfish Hunter, as a result of becoming the first free agent, is the first $1 million contract in baseball. So he did all right out of it then. He did very well. This made huge news across America. The fact that these players were now negotiating contracts for a million dollars. I mean, from going from, you know, like when Miller took over the union to when he finished, the average player's salary was in the low, like, it was like $40,000 a year. Yeah. By the time he'd finished, it was 320 something thousand Goodness me. a year average. I mean, his, it's extraordinary, his achievements. Um, and it's really changed the way that baseball has developed because when you look at the baseball players now, there's a player, um, this is, a, an, again, an amazing story of Miller's ability to be able to uh, harness his knowledge from trade unionism in his uh, steelworkers uh, role. Bear in mind, he was also an advisor to the, to the vice president as well, Miller. He pointed out a player, Barry Bonds, who was a young player, highly gifted. And he said to Barry Bonds, and he said to the other players, he said, if you let me do what I do, Bobby Bonds, your son, if we follow my direction, he'll earn more in one year than all of you earn in your career. Do you know Barry Bonds? Do you know what his career earnings are? Go on. In 2005, he signed a contract for one year, $22 million for one year. His career earnings by the time he'd finished his career, $188 million. Not bad. Not bad. And so he was, he was used as Miller used Bobby Bonds as an example of how, what would happen if you got paid what you were worth. Do you know the sadness though is Bobby Bonds became the first player to sign out of the Major League Baseball Players Association. What? He signed out of the so union. He quit. Yeah, because he said, oh, you're holding me back, right? Because I want to negotiate on my own. Wow. In my view, that's a complete betrayal of the trade union, etc., and what it had done for the sport and Miller and his father. So to the point, Matt, where the Major League Baseball Players Association, they sign off on all like things like, you know, uh, computer games, video games and uh, board games, books, sticker mm-hmm. books, uh, cards. So Bobby Bonds isn't in them. <laughs> You know, like he signed, yeah, he did very well financially and everything, but like he's not in those computer games and things because they couldn't use his image because he wasn't part of the union. So he, you know, I, I kind of uh, I'm a, got mixed feelings about that. But um, yeah, he was the first player in history not to sign the license and, and went, it, went it alone. In 1981, there's a dispute over free agent compensation. The players go on strike again. Uh, the Major League Baseball Players Association won uh, their accusations of collusion charges, which was against the players. It resulted in $269 million of fines to the owners of the Major League Baseball 
teams. Oh. <laughs> Marvin Miller finishes his tenure as top dog in the Players' Union in 1983. There is calls for him to be put in the Hall of Fame, which are not answered <laughs> because the people who vote for the Hall of Fame, people who are on the, bo- the board that vote for the Hall of Fame, don't like him that much because he's really cost them a uh, upset. Yeah, caused a bit of uh, consternation. There is constant calls for him to be um, given this honour. Always refused. He died in 2012. Still not inducted into the Hall of Fame. He got asked... He lived till he was 95. He got asked... Um, when he was in his early 90s about being inducted to the Hall of Fame. And he said, at this age, I've got more to worry about mortality than supposed immortality. So yeah. it's like, it's, That's a good he's a, quite a, a smart man. And, um, you know, he did so much for the game. Like ending the reserve clause was, that was the watershed moment. But everything that he needed to do to make that possible uh, was was absolutely critical to um, that being successful. And, you know, he's married to his wife, Teresa, for 70 years. They had two children. Um, and, you know, he died in Manhattan. He was from the Bronx. You know, he was, you can imagine, like, his, his voice and the way he would negotiate. But he was very, very smart, um, very gifted man. And to apply uh, what he did, uh, to the betterment of others. And the players today owe him a huge debt, metaphorically and literally, they owe him a huge debt. He was eventually got enough votes to be elected into the Hall of Fame by the Modern Baseball Era Committee for 2020. He was formally inducted in September on September the 8th, 2021. You know why he was voted by that modern baseball era committee? Go on. Because those are the players who benefited from his actions all those years ago. And so he, they just had to wait until players who had actually been positively affected got on the board right. to vote him in yeah. in the Hall of Fame. And sadly, that was uh, after his death. An extraordinary man, and I could go on and talk about the impacts upon wider American society because of Marvin Miller, but an absolute triumph um, and changed the sport from top to bottom because he dared to question the orthodoxy and he also educated and helped those players realise their worth, realise their value and changed American sport forever. Marvin Miller. Great. Good on you, Marvin. Good on you, Marvin. And now, and obviously, you, you maybe just went over your page there, Ian, because you've just just gone over half an hour. Maybe you were speaking slowly, or you're writing was slightly <laughs> smaller this time. I don't know. <laughs> but thank you very much yeah. for that, that. One of the greatest sports stories ever told there, Ian. Thank you, listener, for, for uh, being with us again today. Do get in touch with us. Uh, you can email in at thewheelofsport at gmail.com or get in touch uh, on Instagram or socials at the Wheel of Sport. Uh, with any episode suggestions or any comments, we do love to uh, receive your feedback. Thanks very much, Ian. That's that's great. Maybe we should unionise. Uh, I, I wonder yeah. sometimes if my deal's good enough here. So, yeah, you've inspired <laughs> yeah, yeah. me. 
<laughs> Look, if, if either one of us has to go on strike or both of us, it's got to be both of us, doesn't That's it? Because true, one yeah. of us is going to be pre- a pretty lonely Skype call. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Good point. Never cross the picket line. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll catch up soon, Matt. And uh, thanks, listener, for... What a, what a great story. Marvin Miller. Marvin Miller. Congratulations. Miller. What a legend. <laughs>